copies of God's Word, <coughs> excuse me, uh, copies of God's Word, God's Word in hand, turning with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, where today we'll be studying the story of the wise man's journey to the uh, child Christ. So this is Malachi chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Hear now the Word of God. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose uh, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This ends reading God's holy and errant and inspired word. May he write its eternal truths upon all of our hearts. Um, something that my wife can tell you about my family's traditions when it comes to Christmas, probably the most important thing about giving gifts is not the gift itself. It is the surprise that accompanies the gift it is a sin in my household to hint at in any way of what the present is going to be. In fact, if you're going to get, ever get away with a lie in my house, it's a lie of misdirecting somebody away from the truth of what is actually in that box. And I get it. I get it honest. When I was growing up, I was really good at being able to shake a package and be able to know what was inside of it. Uh, I got so good at it that my mom decided that she needed to do something about this. And so one Christmas, um, uh, I like, it's like Christmas Eve. I'm going through and shaking the boxes. And I'm noticing that they're all a little bit heavier than usual. They're also a bit more noisy than usual. And then Christmas morning, I wake up and I open these gifts. And they're full of things like dried pinto beans, uh, cans of tomato soup, and just a bunch of junk to kind of throw us off. I've done this with Hillary. I've put like uh, dumbbells and some of her, some of her gifts. Uh, the idea there is to distract somebody away from the main thing, which is the gift. And I think that many of us, when we come to this text, we have a lot of distractions. And the distractions are, oddly enough, the things that aren't in the text. We read this text and we ask questions like, what kind of star is this? Is it a comet that's going through space? Is it, a, is it a conjunction of planets? Literally whole books have been written about what kind of star this is. Or, or maybe it was just some type of supernatural occurrence that God did specifically for this time. I think that's probably what it is, but I don't know. You know why I don't know? Because Matthew didn't tell me. 
He didn't think it was important enough. He didn't think it was the main point. Another thing that we get kind of bogged down in is, is, well, how many wise men were there? If you look at our nativity out there, apparently there was three. But Matthew doesn't tell us how many they are. He just says it's plural. Somewhere between two and, I don't know, 200. A lot. A few. I have no idea how many. Three's a good guess, but I'd have no idea how many wise men there were. You know why? Matthew didn't tell me how many wise men there were. And you know why he didn't tell us? Because maybe he thought if he spoke of the supernatural origins of this star, if he spoke about how it was exactly that the wise men saw the star and, and, and knew that this was going to lead them to the king of the Jews and all this kind of stuff, maybe, if he, maybe he thought if I told them what all of this means and where it was coming from, then it would distract them from the main thing. And, but here's the good news when it comes to Matthew chapter 2. The main thing is obvious. This is what you, he wants you to know this Christmas season as you think of these wise men coming to the child Jesus. And is this, that Christ is king. You cannot miss it. It is all over this text. The baby boy that, whose birth we are celebrating today is the king of kings and the lord of lords, but he is no ordinary king. And this morning I want us to focus and meditate upon how exactly it is that he is this incomparable king that compares to no one in this world. I want us to do this in three ways. First of all, I want us to see that Jesus is the king of kings. Secondly, I want us to see that he is the priestly king. And then thirdly, I want us to see that he is the sacrificial king, the king of kings, the priest king, and the sacrificial king. Let's begin by looking at how he is the king of kings. If you take a bird's eye look at this text, like I said, you'll see that it is filled with kingship language. It begins with a, a contrasting between a king of the Jews, and the king of the Jews. It begins by introducing you to King Herod reigning in Jerusalem. And then in verse 2, you have the wise men come and they ask the king in Jerusalem, where is the king of the Jews? Herod would have said, you're talking to him. I'm the guy. But there's a contrast there. There's two different kings. And then again in verse 3, Also, King Herod is mentioned. The word Christ is scattered throughout the text as well. The word Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah, which means the anointed one. When you say Christ Jesus, you are literally saying King Jesus. Even the star itself gives imagery of a king. And and, and the ancient world, the rising and falling of a star was uh, considered to accompany the rise and the fall of various kings and various nations. This wasn't just a Hebrew thing. It was just an ancient thing. The rising and the fall of a star pointing us to the rising and the fall of a king. But when you read this text through the lenses of the Old Testament, which is something that you have to do. Matthew is writing this gospel to a Hebrew congregation, most likely living uh, in and around Jerusalem, sometime after the ascension of Christ. They would have understood their Old Testaments. They would have grown up reading their Old Testaments. They were so ingrained in the Old Testament, they would not have been able to read this text without thinking about what the Old Testament prophets had written themselves. And when you read the text like they would have, 
you will see that this text is not just saying that Jesus is the king of the Jews, but that he is the king of the nations. He is the king of kings, and he is the Lord of lords. I want you to see this in, a, in a, just a, a couple of different ways. First, <clears throat> there's the Old Testament quote in verse 6 uh, of Micah chapter, uh, chapter 5. Let me, let me read uh, what Matthew writes in chapter 2, verse 6. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. Well, if you go over to Micah chapter 5 and read down into verse 3, you'll, hear that, you'll read this little uh, section here where it says, uh, where it says that, um, uh, that, that this Messiah, he will cause the rest of his brothers to return to Israel. And if you read that in its context, it is quite clear that he is speaking of not just ethnic Jews, but of Gentiles, people of every tongue, tribe, and nation. The Messiah is going to cause not just the children of Abraham to be counted the children of God, but all of the nations, all peoples everywhere. And then second, you have the star itself. The closest thing you have to a, to a uh, prophecy concerning a star accompanying the rise of the Messiah is Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, where Moses writes, uh, writes the words of the prophet, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Here he is speaking of a king coming out of Israel, a great and mighty king. And it would be accompanied by a, a star. A star shall rise out of Judah. But here's the interesting thing. That's not a prophecy of Moses. That's not a prophecy of Aaron. That's not even a prophecy of a Jew. That is a prophecy of a Gentile prophet by the name of Balaam. A Gentile prophesied that. And now you see in Matthew 2, Gentile kings fulfilling this prophecy. And then third, you have the treasures of gold and frankincense. And this is what I really want to focus in on. Jesus wasn't the first king of the Jews to receive such gifts from Gentile travelers. The first Jewish king to receive these gifts was King Solomon, and he received them from the queen of Sheba from the east. We don't know exactly where she was from, but most scholars agree she's from the east somewhere, most likely from Arabia. And she hears of the wisdom of King Solomon, and so she travels to Jerusalem to test him, to see just how wise he really is. And so she asks him all of these questions, and he answers them in a worthy manner, and she unloads a caravan full of all of these treasures, one of which was gold, about 9,000 pounds worth of gold laid at the feet of King Solomon. And then there was also spices, which would have included the spice of frankincense. But the prophet saw in this gift-giving more than just a foreign monarch paying tribute to King Solomon. They heard in it the praise and worship of the future messianic king echoing through time from the lips of all of the nations. Please take your Bibles and turn with me back to Isaiah chapter 60. Isaiah chapter 60, I want to read for you verses 4 through 6. Isaiah chapter 60, verses 4 through 6. This is Isaiah writing to the nation of Israel. He's saying not only is God going to bring you out of exile and plant you back into the promised land, but he's going to make you far greater than you've ever been through a future king. 
So this is Isaiah chapter 60, verses 4 through 6. He says to Israel, lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nation shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news. The praises of the Lord. Isaiah chapter 60 verse 6 says that they will bring the good news of the praise of Yahweh. The wise men are fulfilling this. They're bringing their gold. They're bringing their frankincense. They're bringing it from the east. They're laying it at the feet of the Messiah. And they are also bringing the praise of Yahweh, the good news. But notice where they're directing this praise. They're not directing this praise up into the sky, not the stars. They're not directing this praise to the temple, to the priest. They're directing this praise to the child who is sitting in his mother's lap. They are doing this because they recognize that this is no ordinary child. This is Yahweh come in the flesh Jesus Christ is worthy of all worship and praise because he is the God who is worthy of all worship and praise. He is the King of kings because he is also the Lord of lords, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. That is the one who the wise man had come to worship. And this makes us maybe a little uncomfortable here in America. There is no king here. There's no queen. There is no monarch. We look at this and say, well, this doesn't seem very democratic. It isn't. You do not have a vote in this situation. Christ is king, like it or not. Vote yes, vote no. It doesn't matter. Christ is Lord and king of all. You cannot change that. You have two, two things you can do here. You can submit or you can rebel. That's it. C.S. Lewis says that there are two types of people in this world. Those who submit and bow the knee and say to Christ, let your will be done. And then the second type of person are those who rebel against Christ, uh, to whom Christ will say, let your will be done. And now that sounds like a good thing to hear. I would love for God to say, your will be done. Whatever you want, just, just, just do it. But if you take a second to look inside of yourself and to realize that your heart is deceitful beyond all things, heaven forbid that my will be accomplished. I hear atheists all the time talk about how insulting it is for a Christian to say that without the law, without an invisible guy in the sky telling me what to do and what not to do, that I can't be a good person. Foolishness. Foolishness. If I were to take any restraint away from you, there would be no end to the wickedness that we could accomplish. The only thing keeping us from slaughtering each other right here in this room is the grace of God and his law working in society. Our consciences, all that is from God. If we remove that, 
There's nothing but evil and wickedness. Heaven forbid that my will ever be accomplished. My heart is depraved and sinful. My will will lead me away from the love of God and right into the justness of his wrath. But how can we submit our wills? The wise men offered up treasures of gold and frankincense and myrrh. How can I offer up Christ the treasure of my heart, the treasure of my will, the treasure of my mind, if I don't know that his will is far better than mine could ever hope to be? How can we trust that the will of my king is good? This is going to be the main point of these last two points. The will of your king. The will of Christ. First, I want us to see how his will is expressed in his priestly nature. This is Christ, the priest king. Many mysteries surround the Magi. But one thing that I and scholars feel pretty certain about is that they came from Babylon. You know why they think they came from Babylon? Because they had a very clear understanding of the Old Testament text. And they had access to the Old Testament text because Babylon is where the Jews had been for a very long time. Even after they led out of exile, many Jews remained in Babylon. The synagogues that Jesus is preaching in, you know where synagogues began? In Babylon. And many Babylonians would have been converted to the Jewish religion. They would have become God-fearers or proselytes. They knew the Old Testament. And we've already seen this in our text, but it goes deeper when we study how frankincense was used in the Old Testament and realize that the wise men chose it as their second gift for a very particular reason. And it was this, that frankincense had a prominent role in temple worship. It was used to perfume the temple. The idea there is when you walked into the temple, the holiness of God was put on display. You could see it. You could touch it. You could hear it. But you could also smell it. And it smelled like frankincense. It was also used to sweeten the grain offerings that were made. Grain offerings were not sin offerings. They were done in repentance. They were thanksgiving offerings. Thanking God for his mercies and for providing for his people. And giving frankincense to Jesus. The Magi are recognizing that in Christ Jesus, God had provided for his people once again. He hadn't just provided crops. He hadn't just provided money and safety and peace from their enemies. He had provided for them a great high priest. It was the function of the high priest to intercede on behalf of the people. But the Levitical priests failed miserably in this. They could not intercede for the people in the way that it was required. They could only enter into the Holy of Holies one time a year. They could only do it by way of the blood of animals. And even them themselves required sacrifices. Why? Because they were sinners. But Christ Jesus is the great high priest. He lives forever to make intercession for you. He's interceding for you right now as you sit here in this room. In the heavenly temple. He, makes, he intercedes, to you for, intercedes for you. Not by the blood of a bull or a goat. But by his own blood. Because he is perfect and requires no sacrifice whatsoever. That sounds fine and good. But if you're a Jew reading this in Matthew's day, there would be a big question. How can Jesus be both king and priest? Didn't Saul lose the kingdom because he thought himself to be king and priest? How is it that Jesus can? Jesus is from the line of Judah, which makes him fine to be a king. 
but the priest came from Levi. How? How could he be our great high priest? Hebrews 7 answers that question by pointing us to a very obscure character in Genesis chapter 14, a man by the name of Melchizedek. And you see so many similarities between Melchizedek and the Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, his name. His name means king of righteousness. He is the king of Salem, which is to say he is the prince of peace. He is a priest of God most high. He blesses Abraham, and Abraham turns around and pays for him a tithe. All of that to say is that Melchizedek was both Abraham's king and he was Abraham's priest. There's even a link between Melchizedek and David. He was the king of Salem. Salem's name is later going to be changed in the Bible to Jerusalem, the city of David, the city of the king. There are so many similarities that many people look at Melchizedek and say, this has to be a Christophany, a pre, an appearance of the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. And whether or not he is Jesus or not, he's at least a type of Christ. He will be both king and priest. And how wonderful is it that in Christ we do not have one who merely rules over us, but a king who is also our perfect high priest, who prays for us and makes us to be blameless before God. Another reason we don't like kings is because we read stories of kings in our history books about how they sit in the luxury of their palaces and they send other people to fight their wars for them. But the most popular kings in the history of the world were the kings who left the throne and entered into the battlefield with their fellow men. One great example of this is King Albert I of Belgium during World War I, not even all that long ago. He left his throne and entered into the front lines fighting the Germans in World War I. And not just him alone, even his son, who was only 14 years old, joined his father fighting that war. And even his wife, his wife left her throne, became a field nurse during the war. His people loved him because he fought with them. Your king fights with you right now by his priestly work. He fights with you in prayer, interceding for you. He fights with you in temptation by sending you his Holy Spirit. He reveals himself to you through his word. He is with you now and until the ends of the world. You do not, you fight a war, but you do not fight a war alone. You fight with Christ. But here's the wonderful thing that even King Albert could not do. Before he fought with you, he fought in your stead. I like how Charles Spurgeon says, we all Christians fight a dragon, but he is a toothless dragon. It's because his teeth has been not, have been knocked out. His jaw has been broken. His head has been crushed by the Lord Jesus Christ. He was sent to crush the head of the serpent and to kill death through his own death. That is your king. That is how he intercedes on your behalf. It is by laying down his own life. No other king does that. It is Jesus. But I want to finish this morning by focusing in on that. And I want to make sure that you understand that this little child that we see in this manger is going to become a sacrifice. The sacrificial king. You know the song, Mary, Did You Know? There's an easy answer to that question. 
Yes. <laughs> the angel told her. <laughs> the angel told her a lot of stuff, but he didn't tell her everything. This is what the angel says in Luke 1. He says uh, of Jesus, he will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. What mother in this room would not love to have that said about their child? That sounds great. But Mary's heart was no doubt elated when she heard this. But not long after, probably about 10, 11 months after the angel came and said that to her, a man by the name of Simeon, sitting outside of the temple, said this to her. He prophesies kind of the same thing as the angel, your son will be a king. But then he comes and he prophesies to her. He says, a sword will pierce your heart. He's going to be king. It's going to hurt. It's going to hurt bad. You know why it's going to hurt bad? Because he's going to be crowned upon the cross. If you, think, if you look at the, the, the cross story, the crucifixion story in Matthew, it is just like this Matthew 2 story, full of king imagery. He is crowned. He is given a robe. He is, even if you miss all that, there's a sign over his head that says, King of the Jews. There is a shadow that is being cast over that manger. And it's the shadow of the cross. This child was born so that he might die. This is made, I think, more clear to Mary in this story. They give her myrrh. Myrrh was a very strong, pungent perfume. If anybody in here was wearing myrrh, you'd be clearing the room. It's way too strong for you to wear. But there's a reason for it. There's a reason why it was so strong. It was made to perfume the scent of dead and decaying flesh. It would be like going to a a baby showering, giving the mother embalming fluid for their children. He was born so that he might die. He was born that he might be your sacrifice in order that he might reconcile you to God. And so this Christmas, as you're sitting under your Christmas tree, opening up your gifts and seeing other open up your gift, I pray that over your heart, the shadow of the Christmas tree, the tree upon which your Savior hung and breathed his last upon, would overshadow your soul and will give you peace. That all of those little gifts that you're open are mere tokens of the gift that is the life and the death of your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that as you meditate upon that this Christmas season, that you would be enabled more and more to offer to Christ your bowed knee, your mind, your heart, and your all, trusting that he is a good king unlike any other. Our Heavenly Father, your words are life. They speak light into the dark places they speak creation into being, the heavens, the earth, the sun, the moon, stars, animals. Father, I pray that your word would speak life into our mortal bodies, even this morning. Father, we just read that the wise men, having the good news of the birth of the king, 
when it came time for them to go to Jerusalem, you came to them in a dream and asked them to go by another way. Father, do not let your word, do not let your spirit, do not let the gospel, the praise of God go another way. May it come into our hearts. May it enliven and may it make us new. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.